all I know is look for the green light, <laughs> and it was there. Um, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the elders here at um, Life Community Church, and I'm going to invite all of you to join with us as we continue to worship God through the reading of the scripture. We're in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not knowing is not coming in ways that you that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we gather, opening the word this morning, some of you are waiting for the ladies' bunko. Some of you are waiting for a women's retreat at Hume. Men, the wait for your men's retreat will be one week shorter. We moved it to April 28th through the 30th. Because if you're like me, I don't like waiting for things. The Pharisees were tired of waiting too. They said, all right, enough with the silly business. You've healed enough people. The sick are no longer sick. The blind see, the lame walk. When's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? Are you tired of waiting? We see that the Pharisees pose this question to Jesus, and he answers them abruptly as he typically does, and then turns to his disciples for the discipleship lesson. It's a little more lengthy, and we see the New Testament deals with the subject of God's kingdom. So often, in Luke, there's 27 occurrences of the phrase, the kingdom of God. So we should have it figured out by now, right? You guys know exactly what the kingdom of God is. In Matthew, there's all of these 
parables, these short stories where he says the kingdom of God is like this or it's like this. And, and immediately I didn't appreciate Luke's direct nature. And so I jumped over to Matthew who wants to convince you that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so this thing of God's kingdom and the king of the Jews. And interestingly enough, Jesus tells these stories and, he, and he's hiding the truth in these stories. Luke just comes out and tells us straight. But I need to set the context before I give you the, the short answer of what Jesus is trying to get us to see here. The kingdom of God didn't begin with Jesus. It didn't begin in the New Testament. In fact, the kingdom of God was first introduced in the Old Testament in Genesis 1, the garden, where God's kingdom was there. We see that the kingdom of God through the Old Testament gives its consistency as it points to the picture of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus because we see the kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve lived in willing obedience and submission to, to Jesus, to God. And so the definition of the kingdom of God that we'll walk away with today is God's people in God's place under God's rule. So the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now, in the garden, the kingdom was destroyed by sin, the sin of Eve and then Adam. And so the rest of Scripture tells us about God's plan, bringing about his restoration of his people who are willing to surrender to his perfect rule in their lives. And after Eden, we see the next kingdom that God ushers in is this Abrahamic covenant where he promises Abraham in Genesis 12 that Abraham's descendants will be God's people, and those people would possess the promised land, God's place, and live under his authority, God's rule. The historical process where Israel comes into the promised land as a temporary and flawed experience living under God's rule was the sovereign and redemptive act of God as he rescued his people from captivity in Egypt. It was through the Shedding of blood where they took the lamb and killed it and put the blood over the doorpost so that as the angel of death flew over, those that believed, not the lamb or the blood, but believed God's word that out of obedience they might be saved. And God's promise and God's word is what saved them. And then we see David and Solomon as disappointing as that was also, after God's own heart stepping out from under God's rule. And then Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived and having all of the comforts and all of the affluence he could ever amass and yet still found ways to sin and walk away from God. And yet there was this, these glimpses of the kingdom, God's people and God's place under God's rule that were waiting because after Solomon's kingdom fell, that's when Israel went into exile in Babylon. And it's clear when we read the words of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel as they talk about this perfect, everlasting kingdom that will come. And so these prophets continually and consistently brought up this theme. And the Old Testament ends on the note of this promised expectation of a kingdom. And so as the Pharisees, they're like, we've been waiting, we've been memorizing, we've been studying, where's the kingdom? Because everything is pointing that if you are the king, then where's your kingdom? 
And for 400 years, 400 years, God is silent between the Old Testament prophesying, promising a kingdom and a king. And then Jesus shows up in Mark 1, 15, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus doesn't come on and say, I love you. Try me out for 60 days. And if I don't make your life better, just return me. He says, repent. Your main problem is sin that separated you from me. And I'm coming to redeem a people. And I have a place for you. Will you live under my rule? Will I be the king of your heart? I remember as a youth pastor enjoying a delicious tri-tip sandwich at Firestone with way too much barbecue sauce. And the, the student across the table from me articulated it so perfectly, which just floored me. He said, no, Jesus for sure is my savior. He's not my Lord. He's not king of my heart. I want to live how I want to live. And Jesus can save me all he wants. I'll always take a... AAA call when my car battery's dead for free, but I'm not going to serve Jesus. I'm not going to make him the king and lord of my life. He can just save me when I get myself in trouble. And that's what the aspect of God's love has been exported and freely distributed without the reality of the gospel, the weight of our sin. That we have a king who's come to bring us back as his people at great cost to him and says, this is my love for you. And we take it and we just, we just dishonor the king as we, as we focus on that one aspect and think it's freely, not acknowledging the cost that it truly cost God and Jesus. And we see the ultimate fulfillment of not just a benefit for us, but truly the fulfillment of the promise of who God is and his character. And when I think about it, it's it's amazing that Jesus is always talking about himself, and Luke here is talking about Jesus, to writing to Theophilus, a young believer, saying you need to understand who Jesus is and what he means. He's not just someone you can try on or some new belief. It's completely being made new. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus and John, no, no, this new birth thing is the only way to get into the kingdom. It's the only way to get into heaven, and it's a new transformation work that only I can do in you and through you, and it's the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom is near, it's in him. The book of Matthew repeatedly describes Jesus' ministry as preaching the good news of the kingdom. Chapter 24, chapter 9 and chapter 4, we see the definition of God's kingdom is God's people, God's place, and God's rule. So first, the people we see in Eden, Adam and Eve we're there, they're God's people. And then they sinned, and Jesus is the Son of God who chose to come to earth as the last or second Adam, as, as Paul refers to him in, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus identifies himself with Adam's race at his baptism. Interestingly enough, we're going through this, this training on how to make disciples, and it's a four-week deal, and, and it, you can extend it because there's a lot in there, but there's some very simple things, and one of them was Jesus' baptism that brought up, why did Jesus need to be baptized if he's perfect, if he's God? Because he's identifying with us. He's solidifying that John had a place in between the silence of the prophets to Jesus, preaching the repentance of sins for the kingdom of God's coming, and then Jesus shows up, is baptized, saying, 
this new birth has to happen internally with the Holy Spirit, but externally is going to have this evidence that you need to be washed clean from your sin. And interestingly enough, he also connects within the wilderness where he overcomes temptation, where Adam had failed the same test, ultimately triumphing on the cross, living a sinless life, fully obedient, fully under God's rule, bringing about God's kingdom in the place where the king was to redeem a people for God. So the kingdom of God is God's people and God's place under God's rule, and the kingdom of God is here because the king is here. Paul writes in Romans 15, Romans 5:19 For just as through the disobedience of the one man Adam the many were made sinners so also through the obedience of the one man Jesus Christ I'm emphasizing the one man to understand who he's talking about here the many will be made righteous That's where we get the identity of Jesus coming in to undo what sin did through Adam in you The people of God come to God through Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. And in Galatians, Paul brings it up again in Galatians 3.16, pointing to the Abrahamic covenant where the kingdom was again put forth. And Jesus came as the fulfillment, the promise that through Abraham, the world would be blessed through his generation. And that's Jesus bringing the ultimate blessing. So we see these realities where Jesus is the last Adam, the one true seed of Abraham, the true Israel, the promised son that would be the king of all kings, to reign without end, the son of David. Jesus Christ is the head of a new race, the people of God, all who are in Christ are a new creation, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. They're the people of God. They're the people of the kingdom, the place. Jesus also was and is the place of the kingdom of God. The Old Testament images paint a physical kingdom where the garden is represented, the promised land, Jerusalem, the temple. But it's all fulfilled in Christ. Where he says, no, 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 it's not about the building, it's about the body. And the spirit of God's gonna dwell in you. And Jesus replaces the temple. And those who are indwelt with Christ's spirit become a place of God's rule. And interestingly enough, in Galatians 2.20 and Ephesians 3.17, he's pointing to this place of God's kingdom that's, that's come in, in a glimpse, but will come in its fullness later on. We see God's people, God's place, and then thirdly, God's rule. Lastly, Jesus wasn't in himself the rule of God. In the incarnation, he lived under God's rule so perfectly he could say in John eight twenty nine, I always do what pleases him. Wouldn't that be wonderful to wake up and say, I always do what pleases God? Because guaranteed at night, I go to bed and I'm like, oh my goodness, how could I? Again, I know the thing I shouldn't do and I do it. And I don't do the thing I know I need to do. And Jesus was the one, the only one, who when he prayed and publicly, he's like, I always do what God wants. Always. That's the kingdom. So all who are in Christ live and serve under God's rule in their lives. That's the kingdom now. That's the power we have. That's the healing power. The promise that we'll one day 100% healed. But now we see miracles that confirm that. Now we see God working in and through the ministry of the church. And as I think about it, that the kingdom of God was at hand in Christ. It's in our midst for where God, where he was, God's person was. Where, where Jesus showed up, he brought the kingdom in God's place under God's rule. When Jesus showed up, 
He was God's person in God's place and under God's rule. And all those in him are God's people and in God's place under God's rule. So those that follow Christ experience the kingdom now in that glimpse. But the Pharisees wanted this political, this cultural, this military revolt. So they said, where is the kingdom? And Jesus says, no, 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 time out. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. But they will say, look, here it is, or there it is. And many have come and led cult and distractions and saying, oh, go here or live here and live in this sect or follow this leader. There's the kingdom. There's the way to live with people in a place under someone's rule. But it's not the kingdom of God because it's not God's people. It's not God's place. And it's certainly not God's rule. It's men's rule. And so Jesus rightfully tells us, hey, there's some sketchy stuff that's going to go on in the name of the of me and the name of my kingdom. And to be clear, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Other translations might say it's in you, but that would have been weird for him to tell Pharisee something that was in them that they had yet to believe. And so verse 22, he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. We see in verse 23, and they will say to you, look there or look here, don't go out or follow them. Verse 24, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in this day. The, the, the kingdom of God does not come visibly. Normal people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. Is the wrong translation. It should be is in your midst. So we see that they were waiting and they were, they were wanting this physical kingdom to be there for their own pleasure for their, that fit their own idea and belief system that they were rightfully studying scripture and waiting for. They just wrongly understood that the kingdom was coming now in Jesus and through Jesus and by Jesus and would come again in its fullness when Jesus comes again. And he critiques them when he says earlier in, in chapter 12, verse 54 through 56, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret appearance of the earth and the sky. How, it is, how is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? He's saying, you guys have your weather apps on your phone and you know what that is and you know the traffic delays on Google Maps, but you don't look at the culture and everything around you and know what my word says and understand the kingdom is here now in a moment and it will be fully realized soon. The Pharisees had the whole picture wrong. They thought that the kingdom might be localized and be this military and political reign to push back the Romans and, and free them because that's what their religion had propped them up. That's why Jesus had to go on the temple and flip tables over and say, look, you're, you're, you put added weight on people and made this religious thing when really the kingdom is here through me and I've come to set them free. The problem was not due to any lack of signs. Jesus had done numerous miracles that's why they were saying, okay, you have all this power, but where's the kingdom? Where's the military? Where's the headquarters going to be set up? How is this going to make my followers on Instagram or TikTok support what I'm saying and what I've been leading? And now you're saying something different. Help me get clarity here. It was a matter of inner revelation. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and so we, we might look at this and say, okay, so if the kingdom's here now in glimpse, then why do believers and unbelievers, the, the unrighteous and the righteous, why do they... They, they live together, but it seems like sometimes 
When the wheat and tares are growing together, the tares are growing taller. Why? Why, why is the wheat getting cut down? And it doesn't seem like that's fair. And we see that in the kingdom of God, it was essentially this inner process of repentance. It wasn't about fairness. It was about the work of the Holy Spirit bringing about our holiness. And the Pharisees wanted to concentrate on the external, not the internal. They'd miss the deeper levels of the Old Testament pointing us to Christ. They were pointing us to God's people in God's place under God's rule as the kingdom. And so this is a, a warning as we see, as we prayerfully just look at God and say, okay, this, this kingdom of yours, and we see the ethics of God's kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount and, and how that calls us to really evaluate our lives. Because we see in, in Matthew, there's a lot of times where Jesus says, hey, you, you might think you're saved, but in the end, you're not. You might go to church, read your Bible, be in Bible study, but you might not actually be a part of my kingdom. And that's where we see that the, the kingdom being not yet, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, it reveals our words and our actions that expose what our heart is really full of. And so if we live in, under God's rule and delight in his law, then we'll produce what Jesus is saying. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit will come out. So we see the kingdom not yet in Luke nineteen eleven. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They had this expectation. That's why all throughout in Matthew 12 and Matthew 13, he tells these stories to slow him down and realize, hey, there's a glimpse of my kingdom now to be experienced, but the kingdom and its fullness will come. And, and that's where he shares this image of verse 22 through 24 where he says, the time is coming when you will know, will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, here he is. Don't go running out after them. The Son of Man is in his day, will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. It's like this image right here, where the lightning flashes and the whole sky is lit up. The disciples would see the evidence of the resurrection, and they would watch for this glory to be theirs in, in the heavens where maybe it was like a 24,000 mile long lightning bolt that simultaneously rings the earth and from the Middle East to Russia and Asia and Australia and Europe, they see the whole sky light up and Jesus comes. But the king is here because the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here because the king is here. And so we don't have to wait to experience the power and the presence of God but we're expectantly waiting. We're not wondering anymore. We know the kingdom is here because the king is here. And we know the kingdom's coming back with the king. But he says, before that crazy thing happens, rejection must come. And that's where we, we're sitting right now looking back and seeing, oh, rejection did come from, from the world to Jesus. And then it comes to the church. So for some of us, we're sitting here going, okay, when are we going to get back? When is the persecution going to stop? When is the pref our preferences getting pushed on as the church? When, when are we going to get back to the day when I could read my Bible on the plane and not get weird looks? When are we going to get back to the day I, I didn't have social media accounts canceled? You're not. Jesus said it's going to get worse. And he said, it's going to get worse. They persecuted me and they're going to persecute you. And then I'm going to come. In Luke 17, 25 through 30, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. 
They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. As I read that, I was like, that's pretty direct. Let's go look at Matthew. I want to tell a nice story to the church about a fisherman that was fishing in the kingdom of God's like this, where a net goes into the world and, and the sea is the representing the world and it pulls all these fish in, like this net, and there's a bunch of fish. And then, and then in, in scripture it says that it's, the fish are sorted and they throw back the ones that thought they were in the kingdom, but they just went to church and Bible studies. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound that much nicer either. But Jesus is trying to get us to see the same thing. It doesn't matter what we think. The demons believe in Jesus. It matters if you're in his kingdom. If he knows you and you know him, do you have that assurance today? Because you could come and learn the songs and learn the words and learn some of the language we have, but unless you're reborn, when that net catches you, are you going to be a fish that he's like, yes, I know this, this is a good fish and it's sorted? Or are you going to be thrown back? Because we know there's a lot in the world that are going to swim away from that net and not get caught. And then there's a sorting that happens. And I didn't understand how they're not really connected, but Luke was getting at something a little bit clearer because so easily we, we look at who's in and who's out with the net stories. There's a lot of fish to be sorted. And Jesus was about to be despised and rejected as was prophesied in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, so he wanted to make sure that was clear. Again, Jesus never left the disciples to wonder or to be unaware. They knew exactly what was happening. And, and they wrote it down so we know exactly what to expect. And we can eagerly wait, not wonder like the world. He says, this was necessary price for, for me to suffer and die for you. And Jesus is saying here that he would rise again. And he prepared the disciples to wait for him. In Luke 24, 25 and verse 26, the rejection of Christ continues around the world until the end. And the Old Testament illustrates from the days of Noah and Lot, they graphically picture for us in our minds, Noah and Lot were, were righteous according to the New Testament despite their faults in Second Peter, which that gives us all hope. And the generation and the, and the culture they lived in were just now starting to enter back into. Both escaped destruction, Noah because of his obedience, Hebrews eleven seven, and Lot because angels really drug Lot out, if you read it. He didn't really want to go, and we, we also know how his wife felt about it too. So they leave Sodom, and in Genesis 19, 16 and 17, both men lived in utter depraved cultures. Interestingly enough, on this occasion, Jesus makes no mention of the righteousness of Noah or Lot. Neither does he address the woke culture war and, and the sinful cultures they were in that praise the sinfulness as rampant, as in, in your face as it was, Jesus said nothing about that. He said nothing about the sins being praised. He said nothing about the, the blue and the red. And as long as it stays there, as long as it's political, as long as it's redefi redefined, it's, it's not dealing with our heart. It's not dealing with sin. And so Jesus cuts right to the quick. And he says, 
really the problem is your baseball practices, it's your soccer, it's your parties around football games, it's your in and out, it's your taco shops, it's your breweries and wineries, it's your investments, it's your expansions of your homes and your businesses. That's your problem. What? Jesus, did you foresee America? How did you, what did you, let's go back to talking about the, the stories that, that talk about religious people and the problems they have. This is getting, cutting right to my heart here. According to Jesus, people's problem was their regular everyday activities. Eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, buying and selling, planting and building in verse 27 and 28. It was not their sin, as great as it was, that damned them to destruction. Their greater sin was apathy. And as long as they were apathetic, then they weren't willing to look at their sin. They weren't willing to acknowledge it. They could make excuses and redefine it and redefine it. And all of a sudden you just get exhausted in this swirl and you just give in and you just, you just sit there and okay. But Jesus is saying, no, wake up. You're in sin and I've come to save you. The kingdom is not this political military revolution that's going to set up this new order that you can just come under and live in and be apathetic again. We live in the most apathetic and yet most prosperous time of our generation, they say. And, and we're, we're interestingly, as all the doomsday, doom and gloom stuff that's supporting what Jesus tells us, the boomers are set up to be in the financial and, and most freedom with their time. The millennials are set up to take over and run some things. And then the Gen X and, and Gen Z and everyone under, they're content to be locked in their, their closets and do the programming and, and they don't want to talk to you. So there's the culturally we have this opportunity where other nations had declining birth rates and so they're facing dark and challenging situations and as dark as the church would look and go, wow, you laid it out. The older is to disciple the younger. The boomer, the wiser, who's learned probably through not just always doing the right thing, but you have a lot of wisdom to give to the next generation and disciple the next generation. And that's where we can't live in an apathetic world that's lulling us to sleep. Because he said that it's going to come super quick and then it's going to be too late. So are you preoccupied with your normal life and the seasons that you're going out of and going into that you rarely give a thought to your soul? You rarely think about how your soul is doing and maybe how the soul of someone next to you is doing. Are they hurt? Are they burdened? Are they struggling? And how can I help? Because as I thought about this, I'm like, you know, my job isn't really to serve you. My job is to serve Jesus. And your job is to serve Jesus. And as we serve Jesus together, he says, now you're my bride, serve each other. And that humbles all of us because then we realize we're just here for Jesus, number one, and then whatever he tells us to do, we're going to do it. And there's no, there's really no like second guessing or I don't know if I'm really called or fit. No, we're here to serve Jesus. And how can I help you? It's my privilege. It's my joy. It's my honor. And that's why he's saying, look, if you're apathetic, you can't love like I'm loving you. If you're apathetic, you can't serve because you're going to be so self-centered that you can't see the needs of others around you. And so he cuts right to the quick and says, no, the sin of all sins was their apathy. And then it, they tolerated all these other sins. So bad was it that when they were walking out, Lot's wife looked back and turned into a pillar of salt and she was pondering. Her heart was still grasping at the things she left behind. And he says that it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed, verse 30. And that is the way it is today. 
Jesus' words describe so many people's priorities, eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, buying, selling, planting, and building better homes, cars, gardens, menus. And these are good things. The problem isn't with the thing, it's with our heart. The problem is the sin of our heart makes those good things a God thing, and then we become apathetic because as long as those are serving us, we don't need to serve anybody else. We don't have needs. And it was so revealed over the last couple of years. People were like, hey, who can we help? How can we help? It's like, well, we're, we're actually, surprisingly, we need to help some single moms, some orphans and widows, but everyone actually has, is okay for the most part. There's always people that have needs, but not like we thought we would see. Which really, I was like, man, are, are we possessed by our possessions? Because there's also not a whole lot of people coming, I have free time. But I do hear a lot of, of the words coming out of my mouth is, oh, I'm just busy. It's like, yep, that's how it is. You're always busy. Like, yeah, I got all this stuff and the car needs fixing and the RV's leaking and now I got to go to a sports game and got to do this and that. And it's like, man, that's just the season. You're... No, that's life if you allow the possessions to possess you. And it's not that the, posse... the, the possessions are bad, but are they the most important thing? Do they grab your heart? I'll never forget I was surfing one day and... And I was physically exhausted, but I could have kept going. Like it was more just my lungs needed a little break because I paddled a long way. And, uh, and then I was like, you know what? I've made, it was like the Holy Spirit was like, you need to just take a break. And, and I made surfing. Like I wanted to go pro, as unrealistic as that was. I still wanted it. And my heart was like longing for that thing. It wasn't that surfing's evil, but it was what I was making that thing. And it started to grow and gain control of and it became a priority in front of God. So maybe you're waiting for the kingdom and now you're apathetic because it just never came. God's healing never came. God's deliverance, God's, you're just like, where are you? You've never answered my prayer. I'm tired of waiting. Or maybe you've just gotten apathetic and there's so many good things in your life that there's no room for God to do anything. There's no God thing in your life because you have your things stacked on top of him. Lot's wife could not imagine existence without her possessions. She longed for what she was leaving behind. She lingered and finally looked back and that's when she was turned into a pillar of salt. Just then, boom. The overflow of her heart changed her outlook and her perspective. Jesus issues this critical warning, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. That's the heart. You, you're apathetic and you think you could just kind of cruise through life and, and just my, you know, mindlessly, just blindly obey. And hey, I'm not going to ruffle any feathers. I'll just make the money and invest and everything. Oh, they, oh no. Then you grasp really hard to save or to, to plan or to protect your things. And then all of a sudden things change. And no, I'm going to look back. Oh, man, I'm going to mourn over what was. And Jesus says, whoever tries to keep his life, for sure you're going to lose it. That's the one way you can guarantee you're going to lose your life if you try and keep it. But if you give it away, if you give it to me, then you will preserve your life. Our possessions have a way of possessing us. I remember when my son was, was very little, he was given these soccer cleats, and these cleats literally possessed him. He would always wear them all the time, and you see on the screen, he would, he would slip and fall and slide on the asphalt, and he still didn't stop. And then he's like, these are perfect climbing cleats. So he jumped on the jungle gym, and we're like, dude, you're going to slip and just smash your face up on those holds, because those are cleats meant for turf. But the possession, they were shiny blue, he loved them. 
And it's cute when it's a kid. It's not so cute when it's a grown adult, right? To run around in soccer cleats. But that's what we do in our hearts with our stuff. We let it possess us and control us. And then it comes in and fits in rage. Or it comes in apathy. And you're like, eh. I know it kind of stinks, but it's my, it's my diaper. I'm just going to sit here in it. It's like, dude, that's really bothering everyone in the room. Take, you need to do, no, it's, it's just, um, anyways, I just have cologne. I just need to get more cologne to mask it. Instead of dealing with the problem, and Jesus says, no, the problem is your heart. The kingdom of God is here in our midst, and he explains his coming and the ensuing judgment in this eternal reality that we're distracted by in our apathy. And he's saying, no, focus on the reality. All outward respects, two people will be appearing the same and they're going to share the same bed or work at the same mill or work on the same ranch or maybe next to each other at the same cubicle space. And he says, I tell you, that night two people will be in bed and one will be taken the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken the other left. In verse 34 and 35, there will be no mistake for at that time, it'll be apparent and clear God's word was actually true. And try as they may to make up some story as the aliens or whatever they might come up with, it's going to be clear that God knows every heart. Evidently, the Lord's warning not to return to the city or to one's home when judgment comes led the disciples to imagine that the judgment might be focused on a particular place. So they asked, where, Lord, in verse 37? Okay, so what town? Is it Las Vegas? Is it San Francisco? Like, where do we not avoid? Like, where do we need to avoid and not go? Where's this judgment coming? And the Lord replied, where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Super clear, right? You're like, oh, that's what I was thinking he'd say. No, I never saw the vultures coming into this conversation at all. I gotta be honest, like, I'm still baffled. And so I, I did some digging because I'm like, if I was you, I would want to know this one. Everything's been helpful. The kingdom of God's God's people and God's place under God's rule. That's clear. What about the vultures? So it's historically come down to these two perspectives. One favored by most commentators is that Jesus gives a negative answer. The judgment will fall where Christ appears and finds people who are opposed to his kingdom. Those who are in a state of spiritual death will be like those exposed to the vultures. The other interpretation is less popular, but it's a positive one. Where the body is or where Christ appears, there the vultures will gather around him. That is, the people will fly up to meet him. This may be a a really cryptic illusion of, of the rapture, but we see that judgment is coming and we see that there's 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 gonna be this reality of urgency where Jesus is saying, look, the time is short. Judgment is going to be quick and swift and it's going to be clear. And where the son of man appears, there will be death and there will be destruction because people will be judged and separated from me forever. And so in closing, as we think about this prophetic section that looks to God's kingdom and what are we going to do with it? And it's really helpful, I think, for us to know that God's kingdom is, is here and now in, in a glimpse and will be here in its fullness when he comes again. That promise is true. And we see in, in Revelation, the reality of the gospel is powerful, but is hindered by the church in the end times. Because the world is so apathetic 
and they don't want to hear it, and they're angry by it, and the church just says, you know what, in order to pay the bills and keep my jet fueled up and my Lamborghinis, I'm going to have to tell them what they want to hear, and so most of the churches just fold to the culture. And then depending on if you pre-trib, mid-trib, or however it works, in, in Revelation 11, there's two witnesses. So if the church is gone, that makes sense because the two witnesses are sharing the gospel until they're killed, or the church is here but totally silenced because there's only two that one's through crazy persecution and the other is through death, is surviving, barely. And so these two witnesses come as kind of reinforcement, but we know that the kingdom of God is among us now and will be fully experienced when Jesus comes again. So as we think about this, there's a couple, there's a warning and encouragement. One, the warning is, as the kingdom is near, as the kingdom is in our midst, we can't expect the fullness of God's kingdom, restoring all things now, because the kingdom's not fully here. And we see that so often, the misunderstanding where the kingdom is now, but limited, we have to be aware that the power of the kingdom when they come to Jesus in Matthew 7 and say, Lord, how are you casting us out? We cast demons out in your name. We did all these amazing things. In other parts in, in Matthew where there's the separation of the sheep and goats, he says, if you would have done any of the, these good things to the least of these, you would have done it to me, fed, clothed, visited me when I was in prison. The problem is that they're cast out because they love the healing miracle versus holiness that Jesus brings. They love the power that they could have over people, not the purity that the gospel and the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God would bring in their own lives. They loved wonders over the will of God. And we see all through God's ministry, through Jesus, it was pointing back to the promise of what he was gonna do for him, restoring people to him. And then we're the bride serving one another, preaching the true gospel, calling people to Jesus. And that's the, the warning is that there's the kingdom of God is here in a glimpse and going to be here in its fullness. But the encouragement is the kingdom really has arrived where we see this fulfillment of God's purposes through Jesus. The king has come. The king dealt with our sin once and for all through the sacrifice of him. And the king sits at the father's right hand and reigns until his enemies are made his footstool. The king's righteousness is now ours in us by faith as the spirit of the king dwells in us and the king's holiness is now being developed in us as he sanctifies. That big word just means God's making you look, think, and act like his son, like Jesus. And then we're his people bringing about the kingdom in the places he leads us to as we're living with Christ as our king ruling our hearts. There's a professor that had a class of foreign exchange students and he gave them this he gave them this assignment. He said, "Go and go join an extracurricular activity." And so for us as a church, this is the goal, right? We understand what the kingdom is, but what are we going to do? The gospel comes with a house key. The gospel is all about hospitality. So these exchange students, most are atheists and some are just they don't believe anything and, and they're kind of open to different stuff and they join a church and so they come back at the end of this assignment and give the presentation and all their classmates are just dumbfounded 
you, we joined like the chess club. I learned how to play guitar. I went to a pottery class. Like, well, you joined a church? You guys all religious or something? And they laughed. No, we're not religious. We're not joining a church. We still don't believe in God, but I got to tell you about my experience. They said they walked into this church and, and they were overwhelmed by the love and the hospitality. They just couldn't understand it. They're like, how in the world do, do these people in this place truly serve under God's rule and welcome me into their home. We, we had lunch right after our first visit. They invited me into their home that evening for dinner. And then we got in these Bible studies and I didn't understand what they were talking about, but I, I knew one thing and they loved me. And that God's love they kept talking about came through them as they continued to pour out their hospitality week in and week out. And they're like, I'm not sure about the whole God thing, but I know that was genuine. And I know that they're different. And so as, as we look at the world around us, Jesus said the, the kingdom is here and it's in our midst. And when we believe and we know we're one of those fish that's gonna be sorted and kept is if the, the fruit of the gospel produces that love and that hospitality where we're inviting those that you shook hands with over to your house for lunch or over to your house for dinner. And we go to our neighbor or our enemy and we, we share the gospel with them and we give them a cup of water like Paul said. We look out for their needs, but if we're apathetic and we're not aware of the sin in our life that we need forgiveness from, there's no way we're gonna see how God can forgive our neighbor or our enemy. But when the kingdom of God is in our lives, then we can share the hope of the gospel with those around us. But first we have to be kingdom people about his business. So as we close, we close with another offer for you to be saved, for you to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, knowing that he's forgiven you and he's here to set you free. So as we, as we close, I wanna invite you to, to pray along with me. It's nothing special in the words if you have yet to trust in Jesus and receive that forgiveness from your sins as you repent and trust him. And for those that do believe, we're gonna just give you a time to, to sing Praise Jesus for what he's done and what he's planning to do in and through you. And then we'll take communion to close our time together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today and the opportunity we have to refocus on you, on the truth that the kingdom of God is in our midst because Jesus, you came to redeem and restore a people, to give us that hope that we will be with you forever in that place. And Lord, wherever you take us now, we can, we can be ambassadors of that kingdom as we build upon the work that Christ laid the foundation for, empowered by his spirit, as we fully surrender and allow you to be the king of our hearts, ruling over our desires and our thoughts and actions. We pray, Lord, alongside those who are maybe receiving forgiveness from their sins for the first time, declaring, Jesus, I was a rebel, a renegade, a sinner running from you, and you showed your love for me while I was in sin. You had Christ die for me. And now I'm turning, repenting for my sin, believing in you, Jesus, as the Savior and King of my life. I trust in you alone for salvation. And we pray for those that maybe be praying that prayer would, would let us know after the service and come forward to be encouraged and equipped to take the next step as they follow you, Jesus. And as we leave here as believers, that we would ask that question of ourselves, is Jesus the king of my heart? Am I his person bringing the kingdom 
principles and the place I'm living, allowing him to be the king of my heart, ruling over my life. In Jesus' name, amen.